Welcome to the Mormon Faircast. I'm Ned Skarsbrick and one of the many volunteers of Fair Mormon who help those with faith issues. These podcasts will be a series of nine episodes done by Karen Trifoletti from the I Believe podcast. Each episode deals with issues regarding how the Bible is a reliable source of truth. These podcasts are used by permission of Karen Trifoletti and the I Believe podcast group. And now, the authenticity of the Bible. I'm Andrew Hancock, producer of I Believe Podcasts, intended for all truth seekers, from agnostic and religiously unaffiliated to those intellectually struggling, or friends of other faiths seeking to know more about life's meaning, Christianity, or Christ's church. Your host is Karen Trifoletti, a self-identified, perfectly imperfect, but graced follower of Jesus Christ. For more podcasts or information, please visit our website at IBelievePodcast.com or subscribe on iTunes. Here's Karen. Welcome to this episode of I Believe Podcast. Today we're starting a series of casts around the Bible and have with us a special guest, D.M. Johnson. Dave is an author, Bible enthusiast, and amateur scholar. Welcome, Dave. Thanks so much for joining us today. Hey, it's good to be here. I'm excited. Well, there's a lot at stake, as we've talked about, Dave, in believing or disbelieving the Holy Bible. I mean, if Christianity weren't true, it wouldn't be important at all, right? Um, but if Jesus is who he claims he is, and we hope to show you that he is, it's not only important that we have this discussion, it's pivotal. In fact, everything significant in our lives hinges on the issue of the veracity of the Bible and Jesus' claims and the implications of those things. I mean, our understanding of ourselves, what we get about God, the universe, our destiny, all of those things. That said, it's pretty obvious that in this skeptical age that we're in, there are strident atheist voices reaching fertile minds and spreading doubt in God and Christ and Scripture. People like Hitchens and Dawkins and Ehrman, for example. So as a result, there, there are more and more people that think that the Bible is not generally a reliable source of truth. And there are lots of misconceptions out there, lots of objections that can really make it difficult for a spiritual seeker to have faith in the Bible without feeling like they're naive or they're ungrounded. And there are lots of popular level books written that are questioning its credibility. So our aim today is to talk with our guest, Dave M. Johnson, about the main reasons we think it is quite rational to have faith that the Bible actually is a reliable source of truth. Dave's currently deep in study with issues around this topic because of some of the detailed research he's doing for an upcoming book, which I'm very excited about. So Dave, before we move on, why don't you just share with our audience your reasons for writing your book or how it's come about so they know what's going on there. Yeah, my reason for writing this book is, number one, I, I tend to be a guy that goes off of evidence. I happen to believe that that faith isn't believing where there is no evidence. I think it's believing where there is evidence and, put, and putting our, our trust in that direction. And so I've always thought it's interesting, you know, generations ago, you only had a few sources to get your information, but now uh, in the internet age, anybody can publish anything. And so it's really hard for somebody to sift through uh, evidence for different matters. You have all these different conspiracies and different things. And to me, when you start getting into issues around something like the historicity of Jesus Christ or the Bible, um, I just thought it would be fun to actually weigh that evidence and, and go through it. Perfect. Um, well said. So we'll touch down today, audience, uh, briefly on eight compelling reasons why the Bible is a valid source of truth, and then we'll do more in-depth casts with Dave on each one of these points. So some of these might include extra-biblical evidences of Jesus, 
you know, the wealth of manuscript evidence, corroborating archaeology, eyewitness accounts, and more. So if you're straddling the fence, listeners, you are in the right place today. Hope you'll stay with us. More importantly, and most importantly, we invite you not only to consider what's being shared, but to read the Bible for yourself, and then ask God after your due diligence if it's true. So Dave, ready to dive in? I am. Okay, let's go through an overview of each of these points. Let's first talk about the fact that There really is a good amount of corroboration outside the Bible for individuals in the Bible, including Jesus. In fact, outside the Bible, we have over 100 facts about Jesus that give us a storyline that's very congruent with what we find in the New Testament. Um, And it seems that some of our listeners might be surprised by that. There are a lot of people who think the only documentation of Jesus is in the scriptures. So can you give our audience a brief outline of some of those sources, Dave, many of which come from Habermas's great works like the historical Jesus or the case for the resurrection? Yeah, and and one of the things that Gary does in that book, Gary Habermas in the historical Jesus, is he goes through and talks about all these facts, over 120 of them that we have from sources outside the scriptures. Uh, there's another good book which I like called uh, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. They do a similar thing. But mm-hmm. but some of those extra-biblical sources that we have, we have 42 sources on Jesus within the first 150 years. A lot of people don't un- you know, realize that, like you said, but we have Roman sources, Jewish sources, we have Christian sources, what we would call patristic sources or the early church fathers. We also you know, we have pagan sources. We even have enemy sources, people who did not like Jesus who say things about him. And what we see is when we put those things together, we actually get a storyline that's congruent with the New Testament. And so it's just interesting to point that out to people. So so let's move on to some of the people in the New Testament who are also mentioned in non-Christian sources. Can you give us an example of one or two of those? Yeah. I mean, we have people... um, John the Baptist, for instance, is mentioned by Josephus, uh, James, the brother of Jesus, Herod the Great, Pontius Pilate, Agrippa. We, we have a bunch of different people. If, you're, if you have your Bible right now handy and you're listening, you can just pop open Luke to chapter 3. And in the first couple of verses, there's eight people just in those couple of verses that are also corroborated outside the scriptures. So a lot of people don't know we have over 30 people in the New Testament that we also see in extra-biblical documentation. I think that's compelling. Thank you. Um, there's also a lot of buzz and debate, Dave, around people uh, you know, having tampered with the Bible. You know, there's these exaggerated claims that are causing a crisis of faith for a lot of people. And recently I was reading Lee Strobel's Case for the Real Jesus, and I came across a quote I'd like to share which registers this pulse that I'm talking about. This is actually an email that Lee had received that you're familiar with. But for our audience, um, please help me. I've just read Bart Ehrman's book, Misquoting Jesus. I was raised in the church, and I'm 26 years old. The book has devastated my faith. I don't want to be kept in the dark. I want to know what really is going on in the Bible and what I should believe, even if it goes against what I believe since I was a little boy. Is Ehrman correct? Well, I just have to say that comments like this, recent cover pieces by popular news magazines and other things like that, underscore really the weight of the issues we're talking about and the tendency of some to read these things more or less out of context or to trust sources without really vetting them. Can you kindly speak to that, Dave? Yeah, the the first thing I'd like to just say here at the outset is that um, Bart Ehrman is a a very uh, decorated and credentialed scholar, and he takes a lot of facts that believers also know. Other scholars who believe in the veracity of the New Testament also know these things and come to a totally different conclusion. Mm -hmm. So it's important to understand that, um, you know, just because I don't agree with Bart Ehrman's conclusions don't mean I I don't respect his scholarship. Exactly. But Daniel B. Wallace uh, is in the book that you mentioned with Lee Strobel, amazing read, The Case for the Real Jesus. I would recommend it to anybody. 
and he has credentials that, that rival airmen's, and he's done an amazing amount of work, and he has a center, um, which is CSNTM, the Center for the Study of New Testament Manuscripts, and you can actually go online and see the evidence of this. So we know that there are um, all kinds of facts and data. I like to say you're entitled to your own opinion, but you're not entitled to your own facts. So we can look at those facts and, and put them into context. Thanks, Dave. And, and yeah, Daniel Wallace is amazing. Um, I would just second what you said there. Is, and world-renowned, and you know he's just been a consultant on a lot of Bible translations and done uh, amazing things. So let's take a look at some of this. In, in Lee Strobel's interview of Wallace in the case for the real Jesus, which you've just mentioned, Wallace shares some significant points about the variance in the Bible, responding to the you know this newly caused firestorm about I guess caused by the popularity of Ehrman's work. These things, like you said, have been known to scholars for a long time. Um, but can you help set that whole concept in perspective and share the findings of the Center for the Study of New Testament Manuscripts on this point, and even maybe share with the audience what a variant is in case they're not familiar with that? Yeah, let's, let's do that. And first, let's put it into kind of a broader context. So before we get into, into variants, let's talk for just a minute, as you mentioned, about the evidence that we have. So one of the things that, that's important for people to understand is you'll hear a few different numbers out there when you start researching this. You will see that we have over 5,800 cataloged manuscripts in the original Greek for the New Testament. You'll also sometimes hear scholars use uh, a number that's oh, over 5,600. I think in, in 2012 the number was 5,686, somewhere in there. Mm-hmm. And the reason for that difference is sometimes they'll, they'll find two things and they'll realize, hey, this is really the same manuscript and they don't want to leave a gap in the cataloging. But suffice it to say, that's a massive amount of manuscript evidence that we have. It's important, you know, as we realize that <clears throat> we have, on the average, uh, 20, which is even a high average, copies of the average writer from antiquity. You know, for Plato, for instance, we have seven copies of what he did. Aristotle, we have uh, 49 copies, things like that. And so when you compare that with the thousands that we have for the New Testament, it's actually quite impressive. The other thing that's important as we go through this is to realize that, you know, a lot of people might be familiar with Josephus or Plutarch. We're, we're waiting 800 years before we get any evidence or manuscripts from those authors, whereas with the New Testament, we're only waiting decades. We have our earliest cataloged piece right now uh, is from the Gospel of John, P52, and, and most scholars date that around 125 AD. A lot of people think John was written at 90 or 95 AD, so you're only waiting a couple of decades. So that kind of sets the stage for the variance. Um, the definition of a variant or difference between these things is anything you know that spelling or manus- uh, spelling difference, uh, a wording difference. It can be um, Jesus Christ or the Lord Jesus or Christ Jesus. Those all count as differences. And so it's important to understand that 99% of these variants don't have any effect on the meaning uh, or, or go back to the original, most scholars think. But we do have 200 to 400,000 variants. And I just like to point out that the reason that we have so many variants is because we have so much evidence. If we only had one copy, there'd be no variants. And so, but a lot of people, they hear that number and that really scares them, like you said, Karen. Yeah, but the main thing to focus on is is we have that because we have so much evidence and we're glad that we have that evidence. And there's many cases where you can have hundreds of of documents that say the exact same thing and six that have variants and you're going to have six variants on just that word when scholars are very confident what that word is. Things like that. 
Thank you for pointing that out. I think that's very important for our listeners to, to understand and place that in context. And I think it's interesting to point out here, too, that the evidence on these manuscripts is growing. I mean, it's, it's already amazing. But how much has the needle moved in terms of having more manuscripts and finding new ones? Yeah, it's interesting to point out. When they did the King James uh, version of the Bible, um, they had basically seven copies in the early Greek that they used. And the earliest was from the 11th century, after 1000 AD. Um, as of 2012, there was uh, 5,686, at last I count, copies in just the Greek. So you look from going to seven to 5,000. You know, 686, we, we've got exponentially more evidence. And so there's sometimes a misperception out there that we're getting further and further from what the apostles said. In fact, we have much more evidence, and we have far earlier evidence, centuries. And, and you know, now we're going clear back to 125 A.D., and so we're not getting further and further from the original. We're actually getting closer awesome. and closer. And we'll talk more about that in future casts as well. Um, so it looks like from what's been stated, again, let's just underscore the fact that the essential Christian doctrines re- regarding Christ's divinity, his atonement, and his literal resurrection are not placed in jeopardy from these variants. Would you not concur? I would, yeah. There's, there's no real central tenets that you mentioned that are, that are in jeopardy. And we'll get to some of those things where, where there was some corruption in terms of the scribal things that happened. But yeah, absolutely, there's no of those core tenets that are in jeopardy. Perfect. And there's just then, for our audience, there is a remarkable overall internal consistency about the New Testament. I think that Dave is highlighting. Um, Well, um, oftentimes, Dave, I hear people in apologetics or biblical studies talk about archaeology. And it seems like uh, sometimes people both on the skeptical side and the apologetic side of things overstate conclusions. So while archaeology doesn't prove truth, it can certainly provide us data that shows, you know, there's some historical corroboration. I think our listeners might think it was neat to hear some cases where skeptics might have denied some biblical truth or a data point and that archaeology was then used to affirm in the Bible. Would you mind sharing a few occurrences like that, including maybe mentioning David? Sure. And there's a bunch of these. And I I know that recently you had mentioned you read Cold Case Christianity. And J. Warner Wallace does a good job of pointing out some of those things even just in the the Gospels. But some of the more famous ones that I like to, to cite are the Hittites. Um, you know, skeptics had doubted, you know, is this a literary invention or, or, or the Hittites, you know, do they really exist and this kind of thing. And in 1876 uh, in Turkey, um, when they did some excavation, they found five temples. They found over 10,000 clay uh, cuneiform tablets, uh, basically had records of the Hittites, their names and all these kinds of things. And then, of course, it came out, okay, the Hittites existed. Mm-hmm. And the same thing as you mentioned, King David, uh, skeptics for a long time. Uh, asserted, hey, King David, you know, he wasn't real, this is a, a, a literary myth and these kinds of things. And then uh, they found an inscription that, that in 1993, I think it was, the Tel Dan inscription. And so then, you know, people, it, and it said on there, King of Israel, King of the House of David, and things like that, and basically affirmed the historicity of David. It's important, like, like you said, many people on the skeptic, skeptical side are just you know, they'll deny almost anything. You know, well, yeah. it says this person's name, but that might not be the same person. Maybe another guy had the same name. And, and you have other people on the other side saying, hey, I think I found a chariot wheel, you know, or things like that, or the, the lost ark, or things that... And so what I like to point out is let's come to things where the broad consensus of scholarship uh, can show that there's some historical corroboration with the Bible that everybody more or less agrees. 
That's great, and I think that's true physically as well as spirit with spiritual evidences as well. I mean, we could probably say that there are many that could hold the original in their hands and still doubt yeah. that it's actually the Bible is really true. But just know that as we're talking here, the Bible can stand up to the questions that you have, but ultimately you have to read, apply, and have that spiritual affirmation that that um, it is what it claims to be. Thanks, Dave. Would you also speak to Ramsey and share another example or two? Yeah, I, one of the interesting stories that you'll sometimes hear people refer to is is William Ramsey. He was a a person who was a scholar, an archaeologist, who was atheistic in his thinking and actually uh, set out to kind of disprove uh, the biblical account uh, by archaeology. You know, and what he did is, is the opposite. He went out and, and affirmed, geez, Luke is right in all of these cases. You know, he gets 32 countries right, 54 cities, 9 islands, 29 kings from 10 nations, actually ends up becoming uh, a Christian and saying, hey, You've got to put Luke among the high historians. We also have uh, 84 historically confirmed eyewitness details in the second half of the book of Acts alone, things that are either confirmed by archaeological evidence or things that only an eyewitness could have known. Uh, Colin Hemmer goes through and does an excellent job of documenting those in in his work that he did. Uh, Also in the Gospel of John, we have 59 historically confirmed or historically probable eyewitness details from the Gospel of John. And Craig Blomberg has written an amazing book, The Historical Reliability of John's Gospel, that goes through that evidence. And it's also, these lists are also found in I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist by Frank Turek and Norm Geisler. Yeah, those numbers you can't really ignore. I mean, those are significant. And and it's true, though, we, ha- we should say maybe on the side here, um, that if we could hold the original in our hands, many would still doubt, perhaps. And yeah. if Jesus were here, many might still doubt. Um, but the Bible can stand up to these questions, and for those that want to put it to that kind of intellectual rigor, they can, and we invite that. But it also must be read and applied, and, and that spiritual affirmation has to be sought. Um, so, I mean, these archaeology and man- the manuscripts are pretty empirical, Dave, but I think that people familiar with looking at history would be interested to know how historians look at ancient documentation like this and make these determinations as to the likelihood of something occurring in the past. Yeah, there's a few different things and principles, and this has been one of the most fascinating points in in researching my book. A few different principles that they use. One of the things, if you think about it for a minute, Karen, is they want, when you're talking about an ancient record, you obviously want records that go back as early as possible to that source. A lot of people, you may hear, oh, this was, you know, thought up later and it's important. So the first thing is early attestation. And an example, a quick example of that is in 1 Corinthians uh, verses 3 and following. Uh, there's a, uh, some creedal material, an, an oral formulation that a lot of scholars, even atheist scholars, date back within two to five years um, from the crucifixion. And you have people, even on the radical left wing of scholarship, uh, some people out there may have heard of, of the Jesus Seminar, you know, mm-hmm. and, and they were kind of the media darlings and doubted a lot of things that Jesus said. Even people to the left of that that said they were too conservative accept this creedal material by Paul as dating back very, very early. So the first thing would be early attestation. Uh, The second thing would be what they call the criteria of dissimilarity. In other words, when you see something that is not like the other things going around, it's usually thought to be authentic. And so we have that with Jesus, with things like uh, the Sabbath day changing and things like that. Some of the things that, that, that Jesus did were not the norm or the status quo. The other thing that we'll talk about a lot is is what we call enemy attestation. When there's somebody who is admitting something about you or seeding a point, 
that is your enemy that has no reason to change their mind or to say anything good about you. And so we see for a couple of instances, you know, Saul of Tarsus, Paul comes to be a believer. We have writings in the Talmud that basically uh, say Jesus was doing sorcery. It it doesn't say it in a a good way, (laughs) but it's admitting that, hey, there's something going on. There's miracles here that are that are happening. We also have the writings of an early guy, Celsus. And so enemy attestation would be another principle. Um, so Dave, in Turek and Geisler's work that you referred to, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist, they discussed two other criteria to consider in assessing the Bible that I think are important. The criteria of embarrassment and the notion that the Gospels are both uniform and yet divergent in the details they shared. Can you speak again briefly to those and provide an example like you've been doing? Yeah, a lot of, a lot of people, uh, there, there's something that you mentioned, the criterion of embarrassment, and a lot of biblical scholars and historians talk about this where you have something that's kind of embarrassing and, and you would never make that up. If, you, if you're out there listening to this cast, I want you to think about this. Uh, everybody probably tells little lies all the time to make themselves look better, you know, but, but would you ever tell a lie to make yourself look worse? W- would you ever tell a lie to make yourself get a traffic ticket or something like that? Nobody, human nature isn't that way. And so scholars have realized that there's all kinds of things in the Gospels that are pretty embarrassing. Uh, the people, you know, the disciples, they don't believe, uh, you know, the women when they come back from the tomb. And then they don't even believe Jesus right when they see him. Uh, Peter's denial, uh, Jesus referring to Pete, calling Peter Satan, all kinds of different things like this. You know, Jesus' brothers not believing him and things like that. And that speaks to authenticity. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of people talk about that principle of embarrassment. You wouldn't make up something like that. Right. Another one uh, is what we call multiple attestation. Which is, which is pretty basic. It's, hey, we, hopefully we don't just have one source. We want to have many sources. And obviously the other things come in line too. Many sources, early sources, different kinds of sources. But yeah, we want to, and that's what we get with the Gospels is those multiple accounts. And we have Paul and it shows that there's no collusion because we do see variances, but not on the core message of what's being said. We have independent uh, detail. I like that. And so the Bible just stands up to that kind of scrutiny. Yeah, that's right. One of the things I like to think, and it's one of the points I, I make in my, in my book, is that um, we can treat the Bible like any other book to show it's not like any other book. We, we, don't, we shouldn't have radical skepticism, but we can approach it with that kind of scrutiny and, and show, hey, it can stand up to these kinds of, of criticisms. That's just it. It is the real revealed word of God. That's great. Thanks, Dave. So let's talk about the Gospels being based on eyewitness testimony. I mean, having eyewitnesses is a big deal. And, you know, there's a lot of hyper-focused criticism on the Gospels in terms of when they were written and people who think there's no way it could be for my witnesses and it's some kind of legendary type writing. As you go through this, can you explain the tangible reasons that we can have confidence based on this eyewitness? You know, these are based on eyewitness testimony. And I think it would be good to touch briefly on why it makes sense that we have the four Gospels we do in the Bible. I mean, we alluded to this before, but people hear lots about other Gospels also and unpopular books like Da Vinci Code and that kind of thing, so... Yeah, and I, I think as we take a look at the Gospels, and this is the approach I try to take in my book, they deserve scrutiny because of what they're claiming to be. They're claiming to be historical accounts and, and have the teachings of Jesus, and so they're a common target of, of these skeptics. But basically there is good reason and, and data that points to the fact that these are, are rooted in eyewitness witness testimony. So we have Mark's Gospel, uh, which is basically said to be the account of Peter, and we learned that from a from a church father named Papias, uh, way early back in the church, and he's then cited by by Eusebius, uh, John, 
and Matthew were both in the twelve, and so they would have been eyewitnesses to the things they saw. And if you open up the Gospel of Luke and you read those first four verses, he basically says that he went back and he interviewed people. He wanted to give an orderly account, and so we have uh, two Gospels that are from eyewitnesses, and the other two Gospels are from people who knew or interviewed uh, eyewitnesses as well. And there is, I'd just like to point out for people that may be doubting, there is no early evidence that explicitly says that they were written by anybody other than these folks. Mm, that's a good point, too. Yeah. And this might be a good place just to highlight the difference between the Gnostic and the canonical gospel. Yeah, and the real, and that's one of the things like books like the Da Vinci Code try to really blur that line. And so what you'll see is that there are other gospels outside the Bible, but they are not um, seen to be. Remember those principles we just got through talking about? They're not early accounts. And so that's why you see that difference. And for those of you that have always wondered, well, what about this? Doesn't this have this other thing about Jesus and this other thing about Jesus? The Gnostic Gospels and the other Gospels, we have a couple of scholars, rogue scholars, that'll date, try to date them early so they can maybe sell a book or things like that. But, but in general, the consensus of scholarship, they are not seen to be written in the first century. They're seen to be written much, much later, and they give us a different, almost an esoteric view of Jesus as if he was some kind of Greek philosopher or something like that. And so it's not arbitrary that these Gospels were put in. They were from the earliest dates known to the church. Perfect. And we'll talk more about the Gospel of Thomas in another cast. So let's, let's move on to the evidence which points to the resurrection, shall we? Um, and before we go there, I just want to point out that there's so much discussion around this and attacks so specific to the resurrection. I, you know, I remember writing to one of the founders of the Resurrection Summit several years back, and I don't know if you remember that, but I was amazed at their unsupported claims and just the direction of that whole event to dismantle the reality of the resurrection. And it seems kind of trendy, and it seems like it's the favorite place for critics to attack when it comes to Jesus. Um, I think to the Christian... Jesus authenticated his divinity and further showed who he truly was by his resurrection. It's among the prime evidences of Jesus being the Son of God. Can you speak to that? Yeah, it's it's interesting. You're right. Nothing cuts at the divinity of Jesus Christ like critiques of the resurrection. And so for the skeptic, they realize, hey, if we can dislodge this belief, then everything kind of falls for the Christian. All of a sudden, Jesus just becomes a you know, a, a wise guy or a, or a failed prophet or, or something like that. And so Christianity fails without the resurrection. The Apostle Paul himself says that if Christ has not been uh, raised, your faith is in vain or your faith is in futile, depending on which translation you go with. But absolutely. Okay, so, so now that we've established how important that point is, let's look to the evidence that points to the resurrection of Christ. Um, Dave, why don't you just start with talking about um, the execution of Jesus or eyewitnesses or whatever other evidence you would okay. like to bring to the fore. Yeah, and there's, there's some scholars out there that are kind of renowned for being specialists in the resurrection. One is, is Gary Habermas. Another one is Mike Lacona. Uh, N.T. Wright has some good things out there. But uh, Gary Habermas put forth uh, an argument that has come to be known as the minimal facts approach to the resurrection. And I like for people to, to think of the resurrection in this way. And, and what he basically has shown is that there are these, these five facts uh, that are agreed to by the majority of scholars, even atheist scholars, that basically when you put them all together, the resurrection hypothesis, if we can call it that for a minute, if, you just, if, you, if you're a skeptic or you're not sure, just think about this. What other answer 
adds up these different facts and makes a story that doesn't have to twist any of the facts to make it fit. And so the first one is the execution of Jesus. And so we have that from multiple sources. Even the Journal of Medical, American Medical Association put out uh, an article talking about that specifically. He, he was dead. And there's been other, you know, people try to say, well, maybe he didn't die or this or that, but that's very well attested. Uh, and we have people all across the spectrum that, that see that Jesus died. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that we have eyewitnesses that saw Jesus after his resurrection, and we have multiple eyewitnesses. And so that's an, that's an important thing, and that's something probably of all the things here. Again, these are accepted, mm-hmm. these first couple of things, by well over 95% of the scholars that are out there. And, and Dr. Habermas has actually counted. Mm-hmm. Here's all the credentialed people who have written on this subject in the last 30 oh, years. Cool. And uh, everybody admits, yes, these people at least thought they saw something. So we have Jesus died, that there were eyewitnesses. And then we also have uh, an embarrassing fact. And this goes back to kind of that principle of embarrassment. But the conversion of Jesus' half-brother James. He was not a believer during the lifetime of Christ. And we know from, from things outside the Bible that he was later martyred and died for his belief in the risen Christ. So here's somebody who did a 180 and had no reason to do so. And, and what about the conversion of Paul? Yeah, Paul's another one. And, and this is the one that's really hard uh, for people to dismiss because he had no motive to change. Mm-hmm. A lot of people will say, well, this might have been wishful thinking or this or that. That's not the case with Paul. He was putting the Christians in jail. He was, you know, consenting to their deaths. And so here we have the conversion of Paul, uh, which is an enemy attestation. And so that's a huge fact. Uh, The other one is the empty tomb. Yeah, of course. The dogs didn't take Jesus' body and, you know, people didn't steal him. Can you speak to that? Yeah, it's interesting. When you read, even in in the Gospels, we start to see it where they're making up this story, hey, the disciples stole the body or this or that, which, which wasn't a very good story. But, mm-hmm. but um, what are they basically saying is it wasn't there. If you say, you know, I, I've heard one author say, if, if you're saying your dog ate your homework, you're admitting you don't have your homework. <laughs> and so they're basically admitting they didn't have the body. And if you think about it, they could have brought the whole thing down right then if they'd have just brought Jesus' corpse out. And they didn't right. because they didn't have it. I should state, too, that of these facts, this one is agreed to by about uh, two-thirds or 75% of scholars, not, not as high as the other ones. But still, when you take this as a whole, it's powerful. Thanks, Dave. Um, let's talk about a topic I think is powerful, and that's the undesigned coincidences in the Bible. I think it might be a new concept to a lot of our audience, but will you define that and then just give us an illustration with Herod or another example that comes to you of an undesigned coincidence? Yeah, and these are, are something that I think is interesting because a lot of people, when they, when they first look at the Gospels, they immediately want to talk about all the differences, uh, about all the quote-unquote discrepancies that they see. And a lot of people don't realize that there are some of those quote-unquote differences that actually help. Uh, if you had everything exactly the same in a court of law, they'd say, oh, collusion. You, mm-hmm. you guys got together, you cooked this up. But there's actually places, and we'll get into, into more depth with this in the cast where we go through this in depth, but... You know, for instance, in, with Herod, you read in one gospel, hey, you know, Herod went and he said this and this and this to his, you know, servants. And if you're thinking about that, you think, how do they, how does the guy writing the gospel know this? And then you open another gospel and it says, hey, there were people from Herod's house who were among us and things like that. And so you see, wait a minute, these two guys weren't even talking about that subject in depth. And coincidentally, it totally explains the plausibility of this. 
There's other ones that you'll hear about with, with the feeding of 5,000. And, you know, one person might, might say, hey, we've, we've, they're over here, there's all these people, there's green grass and, and these kinds of things, and, and they're in this town. And then you find out later, you know, Philip is from that town. And who does he ask where to buy bread? Philip. Well, that makes total sense. He's from there. He's from that mm-hmm. town. And so you link all of these things together, and they, make, they come up in 3D and make a, a plausible story that makes sense. I love it. Um, let's take a look at our final item for today and again invite everybody back to the rest of these casts but it's the prophecies that talk about Jesus which were written hundreds of years before he was born as if we don't already have enough to share but let's go into that I know that uh, lots of times critics when they're trying to dismiss something claiming to be prophecy will say that the prophetic statement was written later than the event or um, you know that lots of things that were prophesied might have been orchestrated in one way or another by anybody. Couldn't someone have ridden into town on a donkey, for example, or somebody could have just read what a prophecy was and go and do that thing which was prophesied? Can you touch on those topics as you go through this and maybe make mention of the Dead Sea Scrolls as you go? Yeah, I think, and that's a great point, with the Dead Sea Scrolls, you know, for years people had postulated and thought, hey, you know, because they don't believe that anybody can prophesy, it's easy to say, well, this all was just written afterwards. And that's one of the things that the Dead Sea Scrolls gave us is empirical evidence that showed these prophecies were written before Christ. And so that's powerful. And then you get to your point that you made. Hey, couldn't you just ride into town on a donkey? Couldn't you have just orchestrated this or that? And you start looking at a lot of the prophecies, and, and you can't orchestrate when you're going to be born, where you're going to be born. <laughs> you, you can't orchestrate the manner in which you're going to die. And, and I guess you could if you took your own life, but not when you're getting executed. Uh, the bloodline you're going to be uh, born into, not having your bones broken, all, all kinds of different things that just can't be orchestrated. One of the things that's uh, quoted a lot by apologists that's actually really interesting is uh, Peter Stoner. He was he was. Uh, a professor of mathematics actually wrote a work and he took just some of these prophecies and he said, I want to know what the mathematical odds are that this could just be fulfilled, you know, by, by chance, where on the ones where it couldn't have been orchestrated. And it just is amazing. I mean, it's totally statistically impossible, mathematically prohibitive that someone just by chance could happen to have all of those things happen. And so that's something that people need to think about. That's perfect. I'm so glad we've had this chance together to have this structured discussion around these topics. Um, You know, it's just so important for people who would like to believe in the Bible but want to have those reasons to support their faith and are trying to figure it all out. Um, Do you have anything else you'd like to add as we wrap up this particular overview on the reliability of the Bible as a source of truth and faith, Dave? Yeah, I would just, you know, I like to to speak to people who maybe are on the fence because I'm, I'm somebody who ha- has compassion for that. I like to think about evidence. I like to think about these kinds of things. And I just encourage you, be open-minded. You know, go where, where you think the evidence takes you. And if, you start, if you're just starting out and you don't know how to treat the New Testament, you can just treat it as an ancient set of documents. And you can walk through this evidence with us and see that there are real good reasons for believing. And if you haven't read it and it seems complicated... I would really recommend starting with the Gospel of John. It is, it's not hard to read. It's got some really deep and profound uh, teachings from Jesus in there, and it can, it can touch your life. You know, Jesus gives us an excellent uh, moral framework. And even if you're someone who's, who's not religious, the Bible is incredibly important, uh, whether it comes to how it's helped shape the English language or even down to the founding of our nation. And so it's something that everybody should at least be interested in and investigate. Thanks so much, Dave. 
I think um, to just to second that and, and to say that there's no other religious leader who claims what Jesus claims in his life and death were as prophetically detailed and fulfilled. And, you know, I love what Rabbi Zacharias said about the three tests for truth that you and I have talked about, that something has to have one logical consistency, the second is empirical adequacy, and the third is experiential relevance. And, you know, with the Bible, we really have all three of those things. So our hope here has been to eliminate that it's amazingly reliable, its core teachings are true and commendable for faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and then to do what Dave did, which is to invite everybody to read it for yourself, to listen on, to inquire of God, to determine its truthfulness. Um, I witness to you that it's indeed the word of God and a witness of Jesus Christ as Savior of the world who's internally invested in your destiny. So thanks for joining us today on I Believe Podcast. If you have questions or comments for Dave or myself, please visit us on site at IBelievePodcast.com or on YouTube, Facebook, Google+. And we would love to hear from you. God bless you in your spiritual journey. Thank you for listening to I Believe, Expressions of Faith with host Karen Trifoletti. For the video of this podcast, visit our website at ibelievepodcast.com. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash ibelievepodcast. Follow us on Twitter or give us a call at 185-KNOW-GOD-1 with your sincere questions. Karen would love to hear from you. If you like this podcast, you can help support it by subscribing to it in iTunes or writing a review. Post a link on your blog or Facebook page. As always, The views and opinions expressed in this podcast may not represent those of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints or that of Fair Mormon. Thanks for listening.